0: still at large, unsolved British murders. Hello, and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that have, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series two, episode 12. The Lancashire Ripper, part four. Linda Donaldson had been found dreadfully mutilated and left in a remote field between Liverpool and Manchester in 1988. Her death was the starting point of a wide-ranging inquiry into the unsolved murders of women across the UK. Many men were considered suspects, but none proved to be responsible. Cases went cold, killers went unapprehended. Women continued to go missing and turn up murdered in shallow graves and by roadsides all over the country. In 2011, a new suspect appeared on the radar of police forces, Christopher John Halliwell. Sean Emma O'Callaghan vanished shortly after leaving the Suju nightclub in the Old Town part of Swindon in Wiltshire on March 19th, 2011. She was 22 years old and happily coupled with boyfriend, Kevin Reap, with whom she lived. Her flat was just 800 yards from the night spot and Sean was familiar with the late night walk home. Her and Kevin seemed to have a healthy relationship with them being able to enjoy social lives without the need to obsessively keep track on each other. So when Kevin sent her a text at 3.45am to ask where she was, it was a normal check-in. At 4.40am, he sent another text, simply saying, worried. Being a Saturday night, and late, it is little wonder that Kevin went back to sleep, especially as he had spent the day with friends at the races in Cheltenham, followed by a curry and a few beers. A normal sort of weekend with the boys having a flutter on the Gigi's. That's horses for those not familiar with that British slang. When he woke to find Sean still not home, he called around a few family and friends. Kevin officially reported her missing at 9.45am. Missing person inquiries, or Per in police speak, are received regularly, but in general they are all treated with gravity. The report went to Detective Superintendent Steve Fulcher of Wiltshire Constabulary in Swindon, at 6.45pm the same day. DS Fulcher was the Director of Intelligence with the force and his role in that position was to oversee serious organised crime investigations. But he was also one of the senior investigating officers that Wiltshire Police have. That's an enormous workload for anyone. The next five days would be a whirlwind of investigation and result in the SIO losing his job while simultaneously being lauded for his courage and successful capture of a highly dangerous predator. Based on the information given, DS Vulture formed a team of officers and civilian support staff that he could rely on to search for Sean. Her boyfriend Kevin was interviewed and quickly eliminated. Telephony records showed that his mobile phone and Sean's mobile phone had been in separate locations. In fact Sean's mobile phone was pinging off a tower in Savanac Forest around 12 miles to the south of Swindon on the edge of Marlborough. As an interesting aside, Savanac Forest is the only forest in private ownership in England and has been passed down through 31 generations. The forest hasn't been bought or sold for a thousand years. Being a fairly remote location, the telephone towers weren't giving an accurate or triangulated position due to there being only one that the phone was pinging. The search area within Savanac was 6.7 square miles, most of it woodland, but also with areas of dense scrub. Jean's telephone had finally stopped pinging at 2.46pm when, it is suspected, that the battery ran out. DS Fulcher took steps to turn a misper inquiry into an abduction and called for every piece of CCTV footage to be found, checked, and analysed for any sign of Sean. He treated the case from the start as if it were, quote unquote, a crime in action. That is, the crime is currently taking place. DS Fulcher was working on the assumption that Sean was still alive and the whole push of the team was to bring her home safely. By this point in the evening, the police's golden hour, the first 60 minutes following a crime, had long since passed, but Fulcher ran on a different timeline. He organised the investigation to operate in that initial state of investigation for the first 96 hours. As far as Fulcher was concerned, Sean was alive and being held against her will somewhere. Most of the CCTV turned out to be useless, with only one clip showing Sean walking away from the club in the direction of home, but that clip had her disappear into the light glare of a car parked by the roadside. Little could be gleaned from the video, apart from the car appeared to have silver roof rails, but the make and model was impossible to determine. It was a tantalising and frustrating lead. Officers were on their way to Savanac. Fawcher called in the police helicopter to sweep the search area in the forest. And officers were on the ground in the old town part of Swindon, talking to people in the vicinity of the Suju nightclub. But everything was turning up blanks. Police began to question the taxi drivers who were working that night, but none had any information. The poor quality video of Sean was watched time and time again. The call for CCTV was extended to a wider area, but without success. Search teams were on the ground in the forest. Sean's friends, family and colleagues were examined, but no threat or suspect was found. Major incident teams are not just members of the CID and senior ranks. A good team will include the full array of ranks within the forces in the major incident. A good senior investigating officer knows that they are able to help as much as a seasoned detective because of the local grassroots knowledge of an area and often have insights that the higher ranks would be unaware of. It was an experienced traffic officer who suggested that there were patrol vehicles running dash cams in that area at that time. The onboard cameras provided a major breakthrough. The same car was found on one camera in one car and only briefly. It was enough, however, to identify the make, model and colour. The pool of possible suspects closed slightly. It was highly important to TIE the driver. TIE is an initialism and an acronym that means trace, incriminate or eliminate and it's a standard operational procedure. Search teams continued to sweep the forest. Civilians turned out to help. Many of Sean's friends helped, but many people who had never met her joined the search. Police were still not sure if Sean was with her phone or if it had been stolen and Sean was at a safe location somewhere else but hadn't yet come forward, or if she was a captive or if she was dead. DS Fulcher was working on the premise that she was alive And being held against her wishes. The urgency and scale of the operation was astounding. By the 20th of March cameras on the roads into and out of Savanac were checked. There were 14 vehicles that needed to be traced as soon as possible. But the problem was that only a small number of roads that run through the forest were being monitored. Many other routes had no cameras but at least it was a line of inquiry that might bear fruit. Police were now looking for a green Toyota Avensis, and due to the experienced eyes of police officers working the images, the number plate was deciphered. Now police had the car that Sean was seen getting into, or being made to get into, at 2.52 AM. With the registration model and make of the car known, the course of action was to run those details through the PNC the Police National Computer. The PNC has been running under various names since 1974. It has millions of records of people on it, millions of driver details and even more vehicles. It is comprised of several databases that provide access to information to police forces 24 hours a day. There are two sorts of access available via the PNC, full and what is called name smiles only. Full access can obtain any and or all information to complete the search. There are a few organisations that have full access to it that isn't either a police force or the Association of Chief Police Officers, ACPO. These organisations include the obvious, such as the Secret Security Forces and GCHQ, but they also include her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, which is obvious enough, as well as the Department of Work and Pensions. The names files only is a bit misleading really. Here's the description from Wikipedia. Quote, names file. This contains a large amount of information about people who have been convicted, cautioned or recently arrested, referred to as nominals on the PNC. This includes links to fingerprints and DNA. The PNC is a text only computer, so no graphical information is stored. Photos that are taken whilst in custody have information relating to their location, so inquiries can be made to obtain a copy of them. Nominals can be placed on the PNC as wanted, missing, if they are sought in connection with a crime, on warrant and fail to appear at court, absent without leave from military service or reported missing. All recent previous arrests and convictions will appear on the PNC as well as any impending offences. Full disposal history is also included which will show the sentence handed down for each offence. Numerous other items of information are also stored including all the previous addresses co-defendants, local intelligence, marks, scars and descriptions. End quote. That's quite a lot of information really. There's a lot of rather odd bodies who can access this information including the Royal Mail and G4S. Both of these are privately run businesses and I'm not overly happy that G4S with its history of failures has access but as they are running a lot of custody suites these days, it's not a real surprise. The results that came back gave the team his name, Christopher John Halliwell. At the time he was 47, and as of a few weeks was working as a taxi driver. In his past were a few property offences, and in 1986 he had been imprisoned following a burglary. In the intervening years, he hadn't come to the attention of the police in any way. His files seemed to indicate that the misdemeanours of youth had been replaced by a more stable and settled life. His DNA, however, wasn't on file as he'd been arrested and convicted before the DNA database was running. Yet here he was the number one person of interest in the disappearance of Shana Callahan. SIO Fulcher initiated a full surveillance of him. The full surveillance team is, as you would expect, vastly different from the version fed to us by the film and television directors. It wasn't three geeks in a van and two plain-clothes officers in an unmarked car talking about their dysfunctional marriages, or whatever other nonsense the writers dream up, It is far, far more complex than that. Avoiding the team following him would be almost impossible. Almost. The vehicular team comprised twelve on the road that performed an elaborate ballet of tails, passes, following from the front, overtakes and any matter of patterns to keep the cars in the observation group from being obvious. There were officers on his road. Officers were watching his every move. His telephone records were notable as the night that Sean went missing there were no call logs, no pings. His phone was off at the critical time. Also turned off was his GPS unit that his employer had provided for his work as a taxi driver. Halliwell had turned it off at 2.13am on the day Sean disappeared. Leaving it off until a quarter to seven the following evening. He had told the taxi firm that he was finishing work at around 2.30am. His last pickup had been just after 1am. He then spent some time driving looping routes around the town centre roads. Included in those routes was Manchester Road, the town's red light district. Their covert surveillance of him was in the hope that he would lead the team to where, it was assumed, he was keeping Sean. The team watched as he stopped to buy some sellotape at half six. He needed the tape to put up flyers in his taxi that had a picture of Sean on. They had been distributed widely around town. This was a move that raised the interest amongst the team. Sean had been seen getting into his car at 2.52am and had disappeared afterwards. Here was the driver of the car, who hadn't come forward despite the appeals over the broadcast media and in the press for people with any information about her movements, putting up posters to advertise the fact that she was missing. Police watched as he began to throw items away from his car in different locations. They watched as he scrubbed the back seat of the car. They watched as he burnt an item from his car. Detailed notes were made, locations checked after departure by other officers, and items retrieved. Nothing conclusive linking him to Sean was found at this point. It all seemed like the associated debris of being a professional driver. At this point, he was still assumed to be innocent, but a person of interest to the investigation. The surveillance team followed him into the depths of the countryside in Wiltshire and Oxfordshire. He drove past several of the ancient wonders of the English landscape. Barbary Castle, an Iron Age hill fort just outside of Swindon, and Uffington Castle, another Iron Age hill fort built on an earlier Bronze Age one, and the world famous White Horse Hill. It really is one of the finest pieces of ancient representational minimalism in the world. This fragile feature cut into the turf to display the white chalk of the downland has looked out across Oxfordshire for more than 3,000 years. A quick picture search of Uffington White Horse will bring this beauty to light. It is said to have magical powers of fertility. It was amongst the winding roads that spread out across the countryside around Whitehorse Hill that the surveillance team lost Christopher Halliwell. He remained undetected for a little over an hour before the team picked him up again in Wanborough to the south-east of Swindon. What he had done in that time was anybody's guess, but it wouldn't be long before that missing hour was fully accounted for. A pair of highly trained and experienced officers went to interview Halliwell on the 23rd of March and it became clear that he was lying about his movements which caused him to go from being TIE to becoming the prime suspect. The police had used the press to increase the pressure on Halliwell by calling off the search of Savannah and asking people to step down their efforts. This was done so that if he had hidden her there then he might feel that with the search suspended, he could go to her and lead the police to her at the same time. Just before 10 a.m. on Thursday the 24th of March, 2011, the announcement was made that they were looking for the owner of a green Toyota Avensis, Halliwell's car, and the blatant strategy was to push him into moving. It let him know that they were after him. At 10 past 10, He was seen buying something from a branch of Boots the Chemists and was seen to throw the wrapping away. With it, he threw the receipt. He had bought enough sleeping tablets and paracetamol to kill himself. And at 10.28am, the order was given for his immediate arrest. At 6 minutes past 11, Christopher Halliwell was arrested in the car park of the Asda store on the outskirts of Swindon. Immediately following his arrest there was an urgent interview, under caution. The normal procedures for an arrest would dictate that the suspect, once the initial arrest and urgent interview had been conducted, would be taken to the police station, whereby further interviews, still under caution, would be conducted. There were strict rules to follow as set out in the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, or PACE as it is known. These had to be adhered to, unless there was an overriding case that there was a serious and present danger to life. And as the SIO and team were working under the understanding that Shan was still alive somewhere, Vulture took the decision to intercept the police car carrying him and press him for information about Shan's whereabouts. Had the team been working on the assumption that she was dead, the breach of Pace would have been clear, but Pace also provided a way around it. Fulcher met the convoy, and it was a large police convoy, not just a DS in a car. Even in his car, Fulcher was not alone, he had colleagues with him. So when the convoy met with DS Fulcher at Barbary Castle, the operation was carefully orchestrated to allow for the conversation between DS Fulcher and Halliwell to be recorded in the form of handwritten notes taken by Fulcher's civilian PA. Those notes indicate that Halliwell asked on several occasions to be taken to the police station and for him to have a solicitor present. But Fulcher, still operating under the belief that she was alive, pressed him further for information. Eventually Halliwell buckled and took Fulcher and the rest of the police convoy with them to where Sean was. Fulcher had suspected that Halliwell had either hidden her at Barbary Castle or in Savanac Forest. So it was a surprise to the team when he took them close to the White Horse Hill in Uffington, Oxfordshire. There, down a farmer's trackway and away from the country road, Halliwell showed Filcher where Sean's body lay. He'd thrown her, partially dressed, down a steep embankment. It was obvious now that Sean O'Callaghan had died shortly after being picked up by him. As Fulcher continued to pry information for him, the movements of Halliwell during those missing minutes during the surveillance operation became clear. Sean had originally been in Savanak Forest, and he had returned to her to move her body to Uffington. Shortly after this, Halliwell voluntarily offered DS Fulcher another victim. They had no idea that there would be another lost girl going home. This is a really abridged version of events and if you would like to see the full details please read Stephen Fulcher's book Catching a Serial Killer, My Hunt for Murderer Christopher Halliwell. It's superbly written and very engaging. Eventually Halliwell took the convoy to a remote location in Gloucestershire near to the village of Eastleach which is technically the two hamlets of Eastleach Martin and Eastleach Turville with them being separated by the River Leech. It's a picturesque location with fine mansions and a glorious display of daffodils in the spring. As a photographer I have spent many times there trying, and often failing I feel, to capture the quintessentially Englishness of the place. Halliwell led his entourage to the location where he had buried, some years earlier in 2003, a woman he had murdered she was Rebecca Godden. Becky, as she liked to be known, was last seen getting into a taxi outside of a nightclub in Swindon on January the 1st, 2003. Two days later, Halliwell went to see his GP about cuts and scratches to his face, and it is reported that he appeared distressed during the consultation. He claimed the marks came from a fight with a customer who had started kicking his car. Rebecca Godden was born in 1982 and seems to have grown up to be a happy and bubbly girl despite her parents Karen and John divorcing. Many people come from families where the parents have separated and quite often it's healthier for the children to see their parents find happiness and love rather than the often uncomfortable and psychologically unhealthy presentation as marriage is a form of bonded torture and unutterable misery with a veneer of respectability. Becky is described as an intelligent girl who fell in with the wrong crowd during her teenage years and that led her to becoming addicted to hard drugs and in turn that led her to working as a prostitute to feed her habit. When Becky went missing she had been seeing, as a regular client, A married taxi driver who became controlling and obsessive. Her frequent and obsessive client, in the months and weeks prior to her disappearance, was Christopher Halliwell. There were a number of weeks before the body could be identified. Her family gave a press conference on the same day. Here's her mum talking about her daughter.
1: Becky! Becky! was a very beautiful, intelligent girl. She was my daughter. She was loved by all her family. And we all loved her with our hearts. Our loss is so unbearable. As a teenager, she got involved with people who introduced her to drugs. She left school, and her life spiralled. It spiralled into some very dark places to feed her addiction. We tried everything to stop her leaving home, but on every occasion, the pull of her habit was much stronger and she would do whatever she needed to do to get her next fix. It was not unusual behaviour for Becky to disappear for weeks or months on end. When she was in serious trouble though, she always phoned her mum. She told me one day she loved me so much. She couldn't keep putting me through this hell. And she was leaving. And wouldn't come back to me until she was clean. I never saw her again. I was told by sources close to the family, time and time again. They'd see Becky during these missing years. So I had a strong belief, and I really did believe that one day she would come back home. I've continued to buy her birthday cards and Christmas presents and cards and then she'd come back home. She knew that I'd been thinking of her. Every year since she's left, hoping one day I'd be able to give them to her. And now this. My daughter's been murdered. And to be given that news, what would have been her 29th birthday, the 4th of April. We just can't believe it. And after everything she's been through in a troubled life, She didn't deserve that. Becky has now been found. And the news of her horrific death has totally devastated the whole of her family.
0: At the gravesite, Halliwell stated that he had buried her five feet down but when the forensic team arrived to exhume her they found that she had been buried less than two feet below the surface. As soon as the news broke that there was a recovery in progress in Eastleach, the press descended on the area. There were very few photographers with the TV circus as they were placed around a mile away behind a police cordon on the hill that overlooked her resting place. It was a fairly mild time of year, and I recall it well, as I was there in my capacity as a photojournalist. From the desk where I write this now, Becky's burial site is only five and a half miles away. It's quite sobering to realise that he was at large for all the time I have been living in this part of the world, and that Becky had been buried there the same year that I moved to Oxfordshire. Of all the press circuses I've been to, that was the quietest. Normally, even with very serious events, there are people chatting and catching up, a bit of banter and leg-pulling. But this was different. It was strange. And sad. I returned there during the writing of this episode. It's still heartbreaking. There is now a small memorial dedicated to Becky by the low, Cotswold dry stone wall that borders the arable field where she was buried. The excavation area has settled back quite well in the intervening years, but with a little knowledge of the way plants return after a disturbance in the soil, the wideish rectangle the police dug is still visible. After Halliwell had taken them there, he was transferred to the main police station in Swindon, where he was immediately re-cautioned, placed in the cells and taken away from DS Fulcher, A senior investigating officer he couldn't be in the evidentiary chain, but it was too late for that really. As the interviews began, Halliwell went no comment. Jumping ahead somewhat, Halliwell was convicted of the murder of Shauna Callaghan after a guilty plea in October 2012. The charges against him in relation to Becky Garden were thrown out as the actions of DS Vulture were deemed to be in breach of pace. D.S. Fulcher resigned from his position because of the investigation and his handling of the interviews with Halliwell, and the decision to issue a final written warning about it. I'm not going to get into the details of the Pace situation, as Mr. Fulcher goes into great detail about this in his book. It's also a long way from where this episode needs to go. During this time, there was a lot of activity behind the scenes to have the evidence obtained by D.S. Fulcher admitted as evidence in a case being built against Halliwell. Eventually, and with new scientific evidence linking a spade in Halliwell's garage to the soil found at Becky's burial site, his case went to court. This time, D.S. Fulcher's testimony was deemed admissible, and in October 2016 Halliwell was found guilty of her murder. Interesting stuff, but how does this fit with the cases of Linda and Maria? Well, many experienced officers, including Steve Fulcher, believe that Halliwell has far more than two murders to his name. If you should care to remember, he was sentenced to a short custodial term in 1986. During this time, Halliwell asked a cellmate, how many do you need to be called a serial killer? unquote. Distasteful cellmate banter at worst, surely. Well, maybe not. The investigation team had been working on the assumption that some of the items he discarded were his mementos of the murder of Sean, and during the forensic dissection of his life and home that followed his arrest, it became obvious that there were no trophies at his home. But he did have a trophy store and what a store it was. It was a pond in Ramsbury in Wiltshire. In that pond was a single barrel shotgun and Sean's missing boots. There were other items buried around the edge of it. When it was first discovered the find was reported to contain six items that may be linked to other murders around the country. But the actual number was 60 so how does this relate? Halliwell was a strangler, stabber and basher, whereas Maria had been dismembered with power tools. When Becky was recovered, it was found that Halliwell had removed her hands, feet and head, which is still to be recovered. He was a dismemberer, too, and the grave site was less than two feet and not the five feet he had claimed. Was he referencing another gravesite, another victim, and those years between Becky and Sean? What had he been up to? And had he killed before Becky? There's a lot more that can be said about Christopher Halliwell, his background and childhood, and his time living in various parts of the country, or time visiting relatives in various areas. Were there women who went missing or were murdered in those locations? One leading crime writer, and former police intelligence officer believe so. Chris Clark spent most of his working life in the police force. He joined in 1966 and retired from the force in August 1994. In his position of intelligence officer he was to analyse crimes and look for significant patterns in offending and draw up tactical and strategic assessments for the force. It's a complex job that requires a great deal of insight into the workings of the criminals they study. Chris has a number of excellent books under his belt, including Yorkshire Ripper, The Secret Murders, and The Face of Evil, the true story of serial killer Robert Black. Both are information dense reads on the unsolved crimes that fit the pattern of offending of these two depraved individuals. And they are most certainly worth the time and money. And would like to recommend that you search out Chris Clark on your preferred book or e-book supplier. His next book, *The Waterway Murders*, centres on the crimes and pattern of offending that Halliwell has committed. In particular, he has shown that Halliwell has had many connections all over the country, and has, from time to time, lived in different areas. Many people move around and relocate for many different reasons, but there's quite stark differences between moving for work, life or love, and switching locations to avoid detection. Through the meticulous research that Chris conducts into the cases he writes about, he has uncovered the series of coincidences that are too big to be casually overlooked. Chris has found that Halliwell's timeline fits all too neatly with some major cases that are still unsolved, including Linda and Maria's. He has also highlighted the fact that March the 19th seems to have been important to Halliwell and that in 2009 Halliwell's father lived a few streets away from the home of missing university chef Claudia Lawrence. The university chef was her job, but more importantly Claudia was a daughter, sister and friend. She was loved and valued, as all of the victims are. In the instance of Carol Clark, no relation, a woman working the streets in Bristol who was murdered in 1993, there's quite a lot of obvious similarities with Becky's later murder. Carol was working the streets of the Montpellier area and was known to check back in with her husband regularly. But on the 26th of March, Carol disappeared. Two days later, she was found on the side of a canal bank, some 30 miles away. She was partially dressed and had suffered a sudden and violent blow to the neck that is believed to be the cause of her death. The clothes that were missing from her have not been recovered. Were they among the items recovered from Ramsbury? As the items recovered only begun to be investigated in 2016, there is still no clear answer on that. Halliwell is a strong match for a lot of the crimes against prostitutes across the UK as his MO seems to be fairly consistent and his veneer of stability and respectability hides the reality that he was and continues to be a violent psychopath with delusions of adequacy. He is currently claiming to be the devil and calls Peter Sutcliffe, quote unquote, a nutter. Another woman who may have been a victim of Halliwell is Sally Ann John. Sally went missing from Swindon in 1995 with the last confirmed sighting being on Aylesbury Street at 10.45am on the 8th of September. Aylesbury Street is just a stone's throw from the red light district and at the time of her disappearance she was 23 and in a relationship that had caused some concern for her friends. Sally Ann has an all too familiar story. She grew up in a happy family with no real problems, who was popular and loved by many. Then she fell in with the wrong crowd, a euphemism for low-level scuzzbags and junkies. Part of the appeal of the wrong crowd is that it is a radically different way of life that has the illicit romance of drugs and being part of some great secret that everyday folk neither understand or approve of. It's intoxicating for the hearts and minds of rebellious teens and adolescents. Eventually, poor Sally became addicted to heroin and turned to selling herself to feed her addiction. During the time she was working the streets of Swindon, Sally Ann developed a relationship of sorts with a regular punter. He became possessive and controlling of her. On the night she disappeared, She had told friends that she would only be out until around midnight. But after the sighting just before 11 o'clock, Sally Ann was never seen again. Her body is yet to be discovered. In total, Chris Clark has identified 25 women who have profiles or lifestyles that seem to indicate that they would have been at risk from a predatory, peripatetic psychopath such as Christopher Halliwell. From what I've read of the yet to be released book, the arguments he puts forward are very compelling, including links to the locations where Halliwell had family or was known to visit regularly. Having read Chris's other books, I await the release of his book on Halliwell with some anticipation, trepidation and fascination. I've been deliberately sparse on the details of those cases because I would encourage you all to buy a copy of Chris's book when it is published and as soon as it is, I will let you all know. How culpable Honeywell is in other crimes needs to be established and the prevailing attitude from Wiltshire Constabulary is not making it an easy task. The force's position on his involvement in other murders is, quote, there is no evidence, no evidence whatsoever, to link him to any other murder in the country. End quote. With police budgets being continually cut by self-serving politicians in London who demand that they do more with less, which was Theresa May's position when she was Home Secretary, there's likely to be more killers slipping through the net. And given the rise and rise of violence and lethal violence, against the women working as prostitutes, it seems like we are heading into the perfect storm that will allow the numerous, as yet unidentified serial killers operating in the UK to flourish. The killers of Maria and Linda have not been identified. Vera's killer remains uncaught, as do the killers of so many young, vulnerable women. Our current approach to prostitution is failing. Our government's current position on drugs is an abject failure and further prohibition of substances has led to wealthy and powerful gangs becoming even more powerful and even more wealthy. This series has been about the so-called Lancashire Ripper. It was a press invention And as more bodies were found in the Midlands, the press coined the term, the Midlands Ripper, and bundled the crimes of the Lancashire Ripper in with them. The desire to sell papers with an easily digestible phantom that can be encapsulated in a single term, Ripper, is a strong and immoral one for newspaper owners. Ever since Thomas Bulling of the Central News Agency allegedly invented the character of Jack the Ripper in 1888, there has been the specter of a maniac lurking in the darkest corners of our collective psyche called Ripper. The Penny Dreadfuls, cheap and sensationalist coverage of murders and crimes, found a wider readership and sold more copies. It has since become part of the English language idiom to mean killer of sex workers, with the obvious connotations pertaining to lethal injury by sharp object, in particular a knife that has been used to disembowel or further mutilate the victim post or even perimortem. Over time, that has blurred out to mean any man, and it is overwhelmingly men who kill a series of women working as prostitutes, with the loose requirement of there being a bladed element to the slaughter being dropped who's further compounded by the horrific crimes of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. The real horror is that there is no single Midlands Ripper, no single Lancashire Ripper, but a series of lethally violent men with a deep hatred of women who kill the most vulnerable for their own twisted and fleeting pleasure. And the problem is getting worse. As a society we need to tackle that and bring to an end the belief that women are inferior or should be subservient to men or are, in some weird way, the property of men. The inherent chauvinism in a lot of men is deeply frustrating and holding our society back. We can be better than this. Until we have a proper national conversation about how we can safeguard the most vulnerable and disadvantaged in society, more young women will die at the hands of violent misogynists and their killers will remain at large. If you have any information about these crimes please call 101 and ask to be put through to the cold case unit at Scotland Yard. You can also leave information anonymously by calling Crimestoppers on 0800 555 111. That's 0800 555 111. I'd like to take this opportunity to personally thank Stephen Fulcher for bringing Halliwell to justice. You highlighted the problems with pace at the cost of your own position, but you got him. Well done. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Chris Clark for his help in putting this episode together. this episode brings Series 2 to a close. Don't worry though, I will be back in August with Series 3. I'm also moving the podcast away from Soundcloud to Libsyn, so if you'd like to keep getting the show via RSS, please watch the Facebook page for updates and news about the show. At the end of this second series, It's been quite humbling to see the way the audience has grown, with so many people returning episode after episode. It really makes it all worthwhile. Thank you for listening. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. We also have a Facebook page, which can be found at facebook slash stillatlargepodcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com Incidental music was written and performed by Russell J. White Links to his catalogue are in the show notes and some was created by me Still at Large is a Tiny Yellow Dinosaur media production